Welcome to the conversation. I'm Mark Thompson, always excited to be here on TYT and really excited to talk to our first guest. Sairu Jairaman is someone who has done such great work in the world of wages as they relate to restaurant work, as they relate to so many workers that toil in America in ways that are unimaginable. And I say that word, it sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not really. She is president of One Fair Wage. When I talk about unimaginable wages, oftentimes the way that restaurant workers particularly are jobbed out of benefits and jobbed out of even unemployment benefits when they lose their jobs is something that many of us as Americans are unaware of. Anyway, Saru, without any further delay, welcome to TYT in the conversation. Thanks for having me. I really shortened your intro. I mean, you're an amazing person with graduating Yale Law and Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And you were on CNN's top 10 visionary women list. You edged me out of that list. I was really <laughs> hoping to make that. So, but you authored, authored Behind the Kitchen Door. And I mean, you're, you're an author and you're, I think, a frequent visitor to CNN and MSNBC and HBO, etc. So now I feel like I've given you a more thorough intro, but I really want to get back to the uh, the centerpiece issue, particularly during the pandemic, I feel this is so critical. Uh, tell us about the restaurant environment and how it exploits these workers. I mean, even in the best of times, but how these workers, I think, are, are subjected to some extraordinary circumstances now. Yeah, so prior to the pandemic, uh, we would talk about the subminimum wage for tipped workers, which is really the source of a lot of the atrocities that you're talking about as an issue of racial, economic, and gender injustice. For those people who do not know, the restaurant industry is the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the US economy, but also the absolute lowest paying. And that's largely due to the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association, which we call the other NRA. It represents the chains, the IHOPs, the Applebee's, and it turns out that it's been around the other NRA since emancipation of slavery, when it first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything at all, and have them live entirely on tips, which was a mutation of the original concept of tipping. Tipping was always an extra or bonus on top of a wage, but with emancipation and the industry's desire to hire black people and not pay them anything, it became, it was mutated into a replacement for wages rather than an extra or bonus. And so we started with a $0 wage for tipped workers at emancipation. And we went all the way up to $2.13 an hour, the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in 2020. Today, 43 states, including very blue states, Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, DC, have sub-minimum wages for tipped workers. And today, 70% of tipped workers are women. They are largely women, disproportionately women of color who work in casual restaurants, IHOPs, Applebee's, Olive Gardens. They struggled before the pandemic with the highest rates of economic instability and sexual harassment of any industry because they had to put up with all kinds of inappropriate customer behavior to feed their families and tips. And in fact, the seven states that got rid of this system many decades ago, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska, the data showed they were doing really well. Their industries were booming, tips were high, wages were high, growth, job growth was high, higher than the 43 states with a subminimum wage for tipped workers. But those seven states had one half the rate of sexual harassment in the industry because in those states, they got a full minimum wage. They weren't as reliant on the tips to feed their families. All of that was pre-pandemic. With the pandemic, this became an issue of life 
and death. Because as you mentioned, 60% of workers in this industry, and this is a huge industry, 13.6 million workers, 60% could not get unemployment insurance because of the subminimum wage. In most states, they were told that their wages were too low to qualify for benefits. And then when they went back to work, after months of not having any source of income, they were desperate. You know, summer and fall, workers went back for outdoor dining and then indoor dining. Uh, and uh, what they reported in this report that we just came out with is that they were largely uh, unable to get tips. You know, 80% of workers said their tips were way down. Uh, and then that there were no safety protocols in place. Um, and that uh, unfortunately, they were subjected to extremely high rates of hostility, aggression, and worst of all, sexual harassment, much higher than pre-pandemic levels. 40% of workers said sexual harassment went way up. And in particular, hundreds of women submitted comments from male customers along the lines of take your mask off so I can see what you look like and judge your tips on that basis, which is a horrific and outrageous comment made by so many men. We've heard it now from so many men that we're calling it masculine harassment. We've heard it from so many women that these are the comments that they're getting from men. You know, uh, I almost don't know where to start with this, but I want to start a little further back because people might say, well, you know, restaurant workers get less money because they get all that tip money. Now, you've just reviewed the fact, and we're going to get to that in a second, that obviously, post or with the COVID 19 situation, these tips are way down for a lot of reasons. And as I say, we'll get to it in a second. But can you just address that argument? Look, you're getting your tip money. That's making up for the shortfall with your minimum wage. Yeah. First of all, even with tips, it's so important to understand that. Uh, these workers pre-pandemic had a median wage nationally of about $9 an hour, including tips. Because the vast majority of tipped workers don't work in fancy fine dining restaurants. They work in Applebee's and IHOPs and small mom and pop diners across America. And um, they were struggling to make ends meet. Look, they used food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the US workforce. And I. I always say, no matter what you want to say about how much these workers make in tips, applying for food stamps is a difficult and stigmatized process. So a majority female workforce that's disproportionately women of color and disproportionately single mothers is not going to go apply for food stamps for fun. They were clearly struggling before the pandemic. And even if, even if you believe that's not true and they were rolling in tips, the fact that this industry had the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry, 90% of workers reported regularly experiencing sexual harassment, can be traced directly back to the fact that they were not paid by their boss, that they were totally dependent on the whims and biases of customers. So, um, you know, I think people like to think of themselves as good tippers, and therefore they like to think that tipped workers make a lot of money in tips. But the truth is, Across the country, nationally, these workers were struggling mightily before the pandemic because they mostly didn't work in places where they got very much in tips. Because tips are volatile, even in high-end restaurants, they change season to season, month to month, week to week. Look, your bills don't go up and down every month, but your tips do. And because a mostly female workforce was subjected to sexual harassment because they were living off tips. 
all of that was pre-pandemic. With the pandemic, the power dynamic that it's that's at the root of the problem, the power dynamic between male customers and women servers, that was really the root of the problem of the sexual harassment pre-pandemic has been so grossly exacerbated, so grossly exacerbated because now um, not only do these women have far fewer customers, they're totally dependent on whatever customer walks in the door, but they're also reporting that there's been a change in clientele. The customers that are worried about COVID and very strict about you know, masks and social distancing are not coming to restaurants because they're more scared. Maybe they go occasionally. The people who are regularly eating out right now and regularly going to bars are the ones who don't care as much, are not as worried about wearing masks and social distancing, and frankly are more aggressive when it comes to being told you have to do this, you have to sit apart, you have to wear a mask. And so these women, the power dynamic has changed so dramatically, both because there are far fewer customers and because the kinds of customers they're getting are so much more aggressive. Yeah, I don't envy any restaurant worker who has to say to any customer to whom they're beholden if they want to get any kind of additional compensation on top of the check. I don't envy them the need to say, hey, sir, would you mind moving over a little bit more? My manager, however you couch it, you know, my manager will fire me if you if I don't ask you to at least, you know, whatever the deal is. Wow. And you know, I know your work and I know you've done a lot of work with those who are behind the servers, that is to say the kitchen workers and all the uh, the abuse and if you will, the, the destitute oftentimes conditions uh, from which those workers come. So maybe that for our next conversation, but just to, to round this off. Uh, the other thing that's happening is that these jobs that you're talking about, as awful as they are, I mean, given all of these other externals that you've mentioned, they're hard to come by now because many restaurants are closing and then maybe even many more will close with this coming holiday spike in COVID-19 numbers. They are, and what we desperately need is for Congress to get its act together and provide some relief to these workers in the form of ongoing stimulus, unemployment insurance, a social safety net that doesn't exist right now in this country. But I also believe that this industry is resilient. Restaurants are gonna reopen after the pandemic. And the question is, the real question is, can we reimagine a different industry that's more sustainable, that's more equitable? We can, because seven states have done it. Um, we need to pass the Raise the Wage Act, a full minimum wage for workers with tips on top. Governor Cuomo has said he's done; he would do this in New York. He hasn't done it. Let's move to a better system through this pandemic, so we come out stronger. Uh, Saru, what a, a pleasure to meet you uh, virtually, and what great work you do, and what a compelling argument for real change in an industry that, as you say, is growing and is including so many Americans. Saru Jayaran and I and I will probably say your last name about five different time of different ways. The five different times I'll say it. But what great work you do! Thanks. We'll look for for more from you, and I look forward to your next visit to the conversation as well, Saru. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Mark Thompson back on the conversation with Tamara Tolls O'Loughlin and. I want to talk all about water with you. You're an advocate for people and the planet and for sustainability. And there's so many different developments in all of these areas. You're the North American Director at 350.org. I wonder if we could just start by explaining what that organization is. Sure, so 350.org are the folks that 
have brought you all of the big marches. So climate strikes in 2019, 7.6 million folks in the street. That was us being supportive of youth strikers all over the world who wanted to make this real. Before that, 2017, there was a great march on climate that really put communities facing impacts first. So we've been around since about 2009. But in general, our work is about mobilizing, organizing people and getting them into the streets to revoke the social license of fossil fuel capitalists. Well, you know, there's a lot to this. And it is certainly the case that disadvantaged communities are additionally disadvantaged or first disadvantaged by policies that favor toxic polluting and I would suggest policies that create absolute madness when it comes to managing natural resources and exploiting natural resources for the sake of exploitation over habitat. But all of that said, I wonder if you can give me a real sort of granular look at what that really means. <laughs> what does it mean to, for capitalism to turn everything into a sale, a fire sale? Uh, let's see, air quality, uh, water quality. Um, the only reason we're not being sold air in containers is because most of it's been poisoned. Uh, the only reason we're not being sold soil by the bag, oh wait, we are, uh, is because the folks that we've allowed to poison it have made it a commodity to sell things to us that should be uh, free. So this latest move, which has been brewing for about two years to turn water into a saleable commodity that can be indexed and resold and repackaged is really going to make it more expensive to have clean, healthy water. There's been a lot said about it, mostly that farmers will largely use it to offset the failure of insurance that should have supported them because of climate change. So as folks experience uncontrollable weather, are dealing with fire, have soil that's been polluted by over by chemicals that were freely available to them on the market. People are then having to compete for natural resources and being able to bet against yourself to make money is unfortunately the American way. So we're pitting people who need water against basic life resources and predicting that it'll be harder to get by 2025. And what you're talking about is the trading of water as a commodity. I mean, this is a new, you say it's been a couple of years now and it's been anticipated for some time, right? But it's now here and in a real way, water is being traded as a commodity. Yeah, it's been floated since about 2018. The financial markets have finally found a vehicle to put it in a few places. The end of the day, normally when you trade something on the stock market, gold or silver or metals of any kind, it usually isn't a life-sustaining natural resource. But in focusing on the idea that you can start the California Water Index, which was launched about two years ago, we're betting that it's going to be harder to get clean water, even though most of the planet is covered with it, and betting on building a market so that people can fight for it in a place where most people won't even realize it's missing before. The aquifers they go to are empty, are depleted. The salt water that's around everywhere costs money to be ported around. So putting it on the market and saying that you can put your dollar down to get access to it is another trick. It's like the big water short. Do you think that when it comes to sustainability and in the case of water, the availability, you think that we've just sort of gotten fat and happy with the fact that you know we've always gotten water out of the tap? There's just a sense, I think, of kind of taking these these resources for granted. Um, I don't know that we're taking them for granted. There are people all over the world working for less than a dollar a day. Uh, the idea that we can turn water into a tradable commodity that puts financial institutions and investors in the front seat 
for for getting access to something that we all need to survive is a predictable pattern of of creating scarcity. It makes it harder for us to have a thing that literally flows through the water table. Uh, anybody who's ever been through grammar school or grade school knows that the water table is a thing that we all have access to. The poisoning that could make it a commodity is actually a thing we're all paying for. The fact that we would double down and pay for it is really gross. Uh, the fact that there are contracts that people would underwrite for it is even more upsetting. The fact that uh, people knowing climate change is going to continually impact them and can't get insurance to cover basic things that could happen and have to bet against themselves in the stock market and the bond market should be even more offensive. I don't know that we've gotten fat and happy. A lot of the world is skinny and thirsty. So this seems really greedy. And you're right, uh, I think uh, I'm speaking about uh, our culture in America. Uh, so I guess what I was speaking of specifically as a setup was when it comes to growing some kind of popular movement in this country, America. I, I, I wonder if people yet feel the shoe pinching for them when it comes to water. Um, I know that there are communities that have been fighting Nestle, that have been fighting Poland Spring, that have been fighting people for at least a decade to stop challenging them for a right to the water in their aquifers. So even in the US where we have been able to buy bottled water, people laughed at that when they, in the era of acid rain, when we were in the ozone layer acid rain part of the environmental uh, industrial complex. We were in a position where we thought people will never buy water, it's everywhere. That being said, ask communities in Flint if they could make it if it wasn't for bottled water. Ask communities in the Appalachia if they could make it if mountaintop removal didn't make the, the soil that pours into the aquifers make the water poisonous. So I actually think for the few fat and happy people, they don't represent most of us. Wow, well, I mean, very well said, of course. I, I, I'm, I'm wondering then what you see as the answer. I mean, obviously you have marshaled tremendous popular support for a movement. How do you push back on these huge corporate entities to which you refer? Uh, I think one thing we have to do is stop letting them hide in shame about our individual behavior. Uh, the biggest trick that's ever been pulled off in the US is the idea that your individual carbon footprint, your individual contribution as someone who drives a car that was given to you by the, by the, by the poor transportation system we have in most places. The fact that you could feel personally guilty about what you're doing to fail to help the planet is a continuing fiction that destroys people's lives and keeps them from focusing on the fact that 71% of the things we could do to save the planet all involve fossil fuel corporations getting their way and putting polluters over people. Yeah, so your point is, hey, look, you can make all the changes in your life that you want and until these corporate entities are representing real change and sustainability on their part. The, the the ball ain't moving down the field. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I am a vegetarian, I'm super psyched. If everybody else had started with Meatless Monday, that would make me feel personally better. Is it gonna slow down the train? No, food uh, is, uh, agriculture is a big part of what can be done. But it's not bigger than just stopping uh, the business that has rolled over our communities that we pay money to uh, when we lose resources. And then again, for the services that they decided for us that we need to buy from them. So I do think that um, change shifting the narrative from personal responsibility to the big polluters that can cut emissions, save lives, and stop putting betting against us. Even when it comes to the stock market, I feel like how many, how much they, I don't know if we could um, say the words jump the shark to enough people if we're in a place where we're bidding for things that fall out of the sky. Like water is a part, the water table is, the, is one of the first things you learn about. If we're in a position where we're bidding against one another to not be poisoned, we've already lost. 
So yeah, it's pretty grimy. Well, you know, uh, you mentioned California along the way and, and some of the stuff you've written and talked about. And California, of course, is experiencing another year of drought. I mean, I think there's been a de facto drought since 2011. But uh, California certainly is in a position to understand the scarcity of water. And yet, uh, your point on you know water falling from the sky and the water cycle and all of that, the water rights regulations in California, you know, you need a team of lawyers to understand them. And that has been in a situation that's been exploited by corporations. You mentioned Nestle, they used to just stick a pipe in the ground and pump water out, right? And then they'd resell that water as whatever, you know, Aquafina or whatever the, the, the brand is. Uh, how to negotiate some of that, the legal side? I think you have a legal background as well. I'm just curious how, how that works into this fabric of, of change. Um, I think that we have long lost the conversation around natural resources and access to water. The concept of riparian rights, I can tell you on behalf of our indigenous partners and my indigenous family members, it is really gross to talk about what it means to have access to water as a right. Of every, um, and in order to have the rights of a thing that should belong to everybody from the core of the earth to the top of the sky, those are things that we've invented as legal fictions. That you own a piece of property in your life in perpetuity, you potentially could pass that on. If it happens to be in front of water because you fought and killed someone else to get it, because the government handed it over to you after they fought and killed someone, it feels pretty gross to say the water in front of your house is yours and it doesn't belong to everybody because it flows from one place to another and is in fact community property. So I do think California has a lot to say about water, Arizona has a lot to say about water, Nevada, and the entire fiction that is Las Vegas and really should not exist. If we cared about water, we'd be paying attention to the agreements we made a long time ago to ship it from the desert to the desert. So, so I do think that we've been in this game for a while and there's some really great media documentaries and books about all the water and land rights deals we've made so that you have to go through this political football where you need to be escorted by a lawyer to understand whether or not you have access to not dying every day. Wow, so well said. You know, the unmitigated exploitation of resources on this planet is a an ongoing horror. And I love even just the offhanded references as you've made as asides to indigenous populations and to natural resources that we should all have a stake in and that we've seen vanish in one way or another, poisoned or otherwise diminished. Can't wait to talk to you again. Tamara, Tolls a Lachlan, Tamara Tolls a Lachlan, I'm terribly sorry, Tamara. Tamara Tolls a Lachlan, and again, keep an eye on 350.org. Such great work, and you know, it, it takes a huge village to move this one, and you guys really get that village together. Thank you so much for joining us today on the conversation. Doing our best. Thanks so much.